everyone, and welcome to a new episode of our quarterly podcast series with FTI Consulting Specialists. I am Laura Kaluger, Senior Associate Editor with Commercial Property Executive. Today, we'll talk about the outlook for both commercial real estate taxation and valuation in the private equity space. Senior Director Asha Scheriger and Managing Director Yunsu Kim, both part of FTI Consulting's real estate solutions industry practice, are my guests. Thank you both for accepting my invitation. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Laura, for having us today. Let's first talk about how the U.S. tax landscape has changed in the past few years. Uh, I will take that, Laura. Um, What I would say is the U.S. tax landscape has seen some major changes in the last five years. Uh, The first thing that uh, came out in the last five years, which brought about a lot of changes, uh, is the 2017 U.S. Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, uh, popularly known as TCJA. signed by former President Trump and has resulted in a sweeping overhaul of the U.S. tax code uh, that has not happened in more than three decades. Um, So that's right. You know, it's almost after 30 years that we have seen such big changes in the U.S. tax code. Uh, What really was the impact of the reform uh, was a lower tax rate. So the corporate tax rates in U.S. were reduced to 21%. It also resulted in a broader tax base and a territorial tax system. There were also some other um, major changes in terms of immediate expensing of certain capital expenditures, uh, limitation on business interest deductions, um, Section 163J limitation, uh, and a one-time tax on overseas earnings that are deemed repatriated. Uh, So most of these changes were not there previously in the tax code. So that really seemed a lot for the U.S. taxpayers. Uh, also, what I would like to mention is uh, there have been a lot of changes in the international tax area. So as far as U.S. outbound investments are concerned, there were some big changes that TCGA brought about. And how concerned are corporate leaders over tax policy changes under the Biden administration? I would say, again, a lot lot more concerned because, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, one thing that TCGA brought about was the lower corporate tax rate. And um, what President Biden's agenda calls for uh, is increasing the rates uh, for corporations. So uh, the proposal is to increase the corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%. So certainly corporate leaders are, you know, concerned uh, over the tax policy under Biden for this tax rate increase. Um, And another thing that we have not previously seen Uh, in the U.S. tax um, landscape is something, uh, a minimum tax on book income. So Biden's agenda also proposes a 15% minimum tax on book income for companies that that have net income of more than 100 million. So Mm -hmm. that is something we have to see. This kind of tax is there in, uh, you know, a lot of other foreign jurisdictions like India has, you know, minimum um, alternate tax that's calculated based on book income. Uh, but we've not seen this in the U.S. So, uh, you know, it will be interesting times to see how this tax affects large corporations and what corporations would really do to sort of change their structures and work around these tax regimes. Let's move on to the real estate industry. What aspects of Biden's proposal drew most attention from the real estate industry? One big thing uh, is, is the proposed corporate tax rate increase. But the other big thing that has uh, really drawn attention from the real estate industry uh, is the repeal of the like-kind exchanges. 
as you know, 1031 exchanges are used by investors to defer their capital gain recognition. And it really encourages continued investment in the real estate industry. Uh, so if 1031 exchanges you know, were to go away, that could really impact um, you know, the real estate industry as such. Uh, 1031 exchanges have always been targeted even under you know, prior law changes, but the economic importance of such transactions has always overshadowed the previous attempts to eliminate it. So we have to see, because this is one of the big agendas on um, President Biden's tax policy, uh, you know, we would have to see how the real estate industry lobbies to just kind of push this off. Uh, but it would be interesting to see if 1031 exchanges were to go away, you know, what sort of alternative regimes will be there to kind of give uh, similar benefits to U.S. taxpayers. I know you recently co-authored a thought piece on private equity in real estate, and your report mentions the fact that carried interests have always been of utmost importance to private equity sponsors. Under Biden's plan, income from long-term capital gains would be taxed at ordinary rates for individuals with an income of more than $1 million. How would this impact portfolio valuations for private equity funds? That's right. Um, Carried interests have always been of uh, great importance to private equity uh, sponsors. Um, Currently, the way carried interests are taxed is if you hold carried interests for more than three years, they are taxed at preferential long-term capital gains rates. Uh, Now, under uh, President Biden's plan, income from long-term capital gains could be taxed at ordinary rates for individuals with income that is in excess of $1 million. Now, if the carried income, uh, carried interest-related income was taxed at ordinary rates, you know, it's it's a big jump from uh, 21% to, uh, you know, the highest individual tax rate, which currently is 37% but is also proposed to increase uh, to 39.6%. So that's that's almost you know double the tax rate regime. So it's definitely a big concern. And that is the reason private equity uh, sponsors would look to revise their investment model, um, which would be like a shift from you know, the current carried interest rates. So if you see a typical uh, private equity structure, the g- general partners get their carried interest, which is valued at about, 20% of uh, you know the the total profits if the rates were to go higher you know the expectation would be to increase the percentage of the profits as carried interest and you know thereby leaving lower profits for the limited uh, partners this would generally you know result in um, the valuations of the portfolios uh, you know significantly being impacted by this uh, and that is the reason you know like the carried interest proposal in general, I think would have a big impact on um, the private equity industry. Um, I would also like to hear your thoughts on the Opportunity Zones program, which has been around for a few years now. What can you tell us about the program's performance so far? How is the new White House administration planning to reform it? So the Qualified Opportunity Zone uh, program, QOZ, as we refer to it, um, allows you know tax-deferred capital gains um, and certain other benefits for uh, certain investments. Now, during the former President Trump administration, when we see that the Congress and the IRS gave taxpayers opportunity to invest in qualified opportunity zones, 
through the QOF, the Qualified Opportunity Fund. These investments are really designed to invest in real estate and specifically in areas that are economically distressed. So the tax incentives for these types of investments uh, included deferring and potentially reducing taxes on capital gains. So this framework, again, was created as part of the 2017 TCJA to encourage investments in economically distressed areas. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you know, like if you see the last few years that QOZs have been uh, there, it's really resulted in a lot of um, clients, you know, sort of going towards that structure also. We have helped few clients to, uh, you know, structure the QOFs and um, do the investments. Uh, also, currently in U.S., there are about 8,700 qualified opportunity zones that have been identified all over the U.S. So it's, it's the program is doing well. Um, the only thing, uh, you know, with the program, again, you know, it's the deferral. So what would be interesting to see is if 1031 exchanges were to go away, would that result in more, uh, you know, private equity funds going the QOZ route? Uh, again, only times will tell the, the opportunity to defer income is not the same under the QOZ regime uh, as same as the 1031. And, you know, the why I say that is, you know, as you know, uh, the capital gains that are deferred are deferred um, only till the point the investment in QOF is sold or exchanged or until December 31st, uh, 2026. So right. it's not not a unlimited deferral. It's it's limited in the sense, uh, you know, it's, it's only till you hold the investment or you um, or you know the time period of December 31st to 2026. Uh, so while we while we see that, uh, it's still sort of a like a ray of hope because uh, the capital gains that you accrue while you are invested in the QOF that would still be allowed as you know uh, no tax. On, on that capital gain upon exit. So if you see pri- President Biden's uh, policy for the QOZs, it's here to stay. Uh, and when I say that, you know, uh, he definitely plans to keep the QOZs, uh, but he would reform it to include more disclosures and transparency. So in terms of, uh, you know, the, while the incentives would still be available for the eligible projects, uh, it would just be under more scrutiny and probably will need more disclosures as far as uh, the taxpayers are concerned. So one thing that I would say again is, you know, you have to see, and a lot would go, uh, therefore, in putting the models together, because the proposed increase in capital gains rate uh, is definitely going to have a negative impact as, you know, the current gains are deferred and then taxed at a potentially higher rate uh, in 2026 you know, when when the gain is actually subject to tax, which was deferred in a QOZ. Now, that being said, on the other hand, this sort of, as I mentioned earlier, the increase in the capital gains rate would make the tax-free exit on the opportunity zone sort of more attractive, uh, assuming that the increased rates are still in place. So, you know, again, it, it's a lot of revolving parts, as you can see. Uh, and that is why I think modeling of, uh, you know, the, the cash flows uh, for tax is really very important. Um, uh, I think, you know, your first question relating to the U.S. tax landscape changing, we, we saw a lot of regulations coming up, you know, relation to TCJ and all of that. 
for the last five years. So uh, I would say tax is no longer like a back office function anymore. Uh, you know, um, the tax executives have to be in a continuous dialogue with the C-suite executives and um, tax becomes very important, uh, you know, in, in planning the deal uh, nowadays. So it's, it's, it's that critical in terms of, you know, having a proper tax planning in place before you structure the deal. I agree. How would you advise corporate leaders to manage liquidity in the current environment? What should their strategy include? You know, if I can say this in one sentence, I would say cash is the king in the current market. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, everything revolves around cash. And uh, it, it's almost like uh, in, in the current times, there is a no industry which is not cash stressed. And again, when it comes to the commercial real estate industry, with all that has happened in retail and you know everything that's going on, cash is really important. So I would say many cash tax planning strategies uh, relate to how best to utilize the recent legislative initiatives. While some may look to traditional tax planning opportunities, like to increase liquidity, and otherwise like reduce or sort of defer their tax liabilities. So those are the broad two approaches. So, you know, like you look for traditional tax planning or you you plan around the recent uh, tax reforms. Now, how business can really increase their available cash is by applying any of these methods to their prior tax returns. Now, uh, you know, there are a few things that have come up recently in, uh, you know, in the recent legislations that have been passed. Basic tax planning methods, uh, which could increase the liquidity for taxpayers, would be deferring their income or accelerating their deduction and fully utilizing losses. So it's, it's one or a combination of any of these three that could possibly result in taxpayers having additional cash and therefore you know, additional liquidity to operate their businesses. What is your take on tax functions and technology? We're relying on technology right now. Um, and I'm guessing that we'll be relying on it for a long time from now on. What is your take on, on tax functions and technology? That's a great question. Um, and why I say that, because again, in current times, I think uh, the importance of technology has just uh, sort of uh, risen to a different level altogether. Um, so even before the pandemic struck, uh, you know, with the advent of machine learning and uh, artificial intelligence, tax functions have always needed those technology updates. Like for routine, any routine tax functions, there can be really significant uh, efficiencies that can be achieved by anything like, you know, just to give you an example, like a robotic process automation, RPA really, or any other similar automation tools. Uh, there can be a lot done, um, you know, to just improve the efficiency for tax functions. Maybe even just like, you know, having a good workflow tool. So a lot of clients have been reaching out to us, uh, you know, which is not a which not a typical trend. If you know, you asked me like five years before uh, that, you know, tax tax departments would look to automate, uh, you know, the, their their functions within within their team. So that is definitely a trend we are seeing more uh, in the current times. And part of it is that you know, like it, it's more of a necessity now than a luxury to sort of, you know, improve the technology. And again, that that why why that is the case? Because again, a lot of businesses have pressure to in, uh, reduce their costs and therefore, you know, would work with smaller tax departments. 
what that means is they are going to be only shouldered with more responsibilities to do uh, you know more more um, functions in sort of the same time that they had before um, the only way that could work is uh, you know having some sort of automation tools again if you see uh, the the way the pandemic has shaped all this it's clearly taken us i would say at least a decade before our time uh, in terms of technology so uh, you know different different technologies that have just shaped up in the last just like last year or so uh, is amazing to see the trend uh, you know in in the real estate industry and again there was a survey of fti industry uh, fti consulting around the real estate industry and technology real estate industry is one of the industries even though large enough has really lagged behind in terms of updating the technology so that being said you know tax function is is uh, you know no exception to that so we would really see a shift in terms of adapting to new technology and using that as an effective tool to sort of improve the efficiencies for the tax functions Thank you. Let's move on to valuation. What are the main trends that indicate what may lie ahead for valuation in different sectors of the market, considering all the challenges uh, to the real estate market brought on by the health crisis? Sure, I can take that. Um, well, compared to last March when COVID first hit, the REIT market recovered substantially over the past year especially after the vaccines have been introduced but even with the recent recovery um the implied property value for many asset types are still well below the pre-covid levels now i start talking about the REIT market really because the data points are a lot more visible compared to the private market going into specific property types uh less impacted or actually uh Sectors that benefited from COVID, you know, include logistics. Obviously, you know, in, with increase in e-commerce since everybody's shopping online, and data center, where COVID really triggered a key turning point in the cloud market. And medical lab or warehouse sectors were really not very much impacted because, unlike office, the tenants that occupy these assets really require the employees to be there. So. I'd say these assets fared relatively well. You know, the asset types that were hit the hardest were hospitality and retail for sure. Many people are predicting that it's going to take a couple of years for the hotel industry to get back to the pre-COVID level. And with office and multifamily, uh, the consensus is that the suburban assets are performing better than the core CBD office and multifamily. These two types were somewhat linked to, with one another. For example, a lot of people chose to move out of the city because they were working remotely. As people come back to the office, I think the multi-family asset um, sector will follow as well. Again, with major cities like New York, it really depends on when people get comfortable taking mass transportation. That's me included, since I used to commute to Manhattan. And what does all this mean for valuations, Yunsu? How has COVID-19 impacted valuations? Well, the the issue with valuation is that in the private market, you're really not seeing a lot of major deals out there. Um at least not enough to set, you know, solid statistics. And when you use deals that happened pre-COVID, we know it needs to be adjusted, but we really don't know how much. 
So in many instances, um, especially if you're the owner of the asset, you sort of have a tendency to leave the valuation as is for now. But, you know, we've seen this in the past when there's a big swing in the market, um, there's more scrutiny on valuation. So whether you're performing the valuation or you're reviewing someone else's valuation, you just want to make sure that the valuation is reasonable from various viewpoints. That includes viewpoints from perhaps like valuation committee or from the perspective of the auditors or from the viewpoint of the investors. Uh, you want to be able to connect the dots of what's happening in the general industry, the public market, and your local market and with your specific asset. I earlier mentioned that the REIT market recovered really well since last March. But I always tell people, if you didn't write down your asset last year, you can't write it up this year. Um, and, you know, some people just leave the valuation as if nothing happened, which is usually not a good option. I would say, you know, it could definitely raise red flags in a lot of circumstances. And oftentimes people ask, you know, how do you value when there are so many uncertainties? One suggestion that I like to give is to maybe try running a couple of different scenarios to see what the possible range of outcome would be. Uh, this is usually welcomed by investors and auditors, especially like this a lot, because it shows the upside as well as the downside. You know, hopefully the reality will be closer to the upside. <laughs> right. So what should we expect going forward? I think, you know, there's more definitely more positives. Everybody is really expecting full recovery very, very soon. And, you know, there's still a lot of cash out there waiting to be spent. They're just waiting to spend it at the right time and in the right market. So I think overall, there's going to be a lot more transactions this year, but it's really not going to be all, you know, not everything's going to be pretty. It will be, I think, a combination of distressed sales in certain sectors as I mentioned earlier, you know, like retail and hotels, and you know, a lot of normal transactions too in those sectors that haven't really suffered. You know, in the for the distress sale, there's going to be owners who are forced to sell because of bankruptcy, you know, restructuring, or if they can't roll over the debt that's coming due. So if you're looking for sales comps in these industries, you'll have to do a lot more digging because. The typical measures like sales per square foot or cap rates really won't be that meaningful. But with other asset types like industrial, office and multifamily and selected markets, I think you'll see a, a lot more normal transactions picking up. Everyone's still a little bit cautious, though, because timing is still uncertain. You know, We really want to wait until the last minute before the market picks up because nobody wants to wait too long. Um, of course. So that's what everybody's waiting for. And, you know, Asha mentioned technology. And um, one thing that I do want to mention is, um, you know, I've reviewed a lot of valuation, not only here in the U.S., but also in Europe and Asia. And the appraisals that I've reviewed um, for assets outside the U.S. typically lack a lot of um, the support. And the reason is not because they were less diligent, but the data that we're used to here in the U.S. is really not readily available. But I see that changing going forward, you know, with surveys out there and a lot of the database that have sales and, and rental transactions. 
really because the investors and clients are demanding similar standards. And I think the technology will follow and meet that demand. Well, thank you both very much for your insights and thoughts. Thank you, Laura, for having us. This has been great. Thank you, Laura. Until our next audio meeting, visit cpexecutive.com for more podcasts and the latest news on commercial real estate.